If you like this podcast, can we recommend another one? It's called Big Picture Science. You can hear it wherever you get your podcasts, and its name tells part of the story. The big picture questions and the most interesting research in science. Seth and I are the hosts. Seth is a scientist. I am Molly, and I'm a science journalist. And we talk to people smarter than us, and we have fun along the way. The show is called Big Picture Science, and as Seth said, you can hear it wherever you get your podcasts. From 1757 to 1775, a four-story Georgian house at 36 Craven Street near London's Trafalgar Square was home to none other than Ben Franklin. During his stay in the home, Franklin was the colonial ambassador to England, and he was often visited there by some of the leading figures in politics, science, and philosophy. By 1998, the home was a tottering wreck and a group called the Friends of the Benjamin Franklin House began restoration work to bring the building back to its former glory. About a month into construction, a worker named Jim Field made a completely unexpected discovery after digging into a small underground pit in a windowless basement room. Poking out of the rubble was a human thigh bone. The police and coroner were notified, and excavation continued. By the time digging was done, more than 1,200 pieces of bone were discovered, There were all ages of human remains, from infants to the elderly, and several of the bones bore drill marks and had been sawed and chopped through. Now before you go jumping to conclusions, one of the founding fathers of the United States probably wasn't a serial killer. But that doesn't mean there wasn't any criminal activity that went on in that basement. During Franklin's time living at the Craven House, he gave his best friend William Hewson, a science student, a safe place to perform human anatomy experiments at a time when dissecting cadavers was illegal. In order to get bodies to work with, it's likely Hewson turned to professional body snatchers to provide him with the raw material he needed to learn about human anatomy. Body snatching was a thriving black market business throughout the 18th century, and medical students and doctors across Britain often hired some pretty shady individuals to provide them with the bodies they needed to conduct their experiments. It was a lucrative business, and during that time, professional body snatchers had a more common and ominous-sounding name. They were called resurrectionists. I'm Nate Hale, hanging out in a graveyard with a pickaxe, a shovel, and a dream. And this is The Conspirators. The study of human anatomy dates back as far as 1600 BC. Archaeologists have discovered ancient Egyptian papyruses that contain descriptions of the functions of the human heart, the circulatory system, and other organs. The first known dissection of the human body was performed in the 5th century by a Greek scientist named Alcman. Various prominent thinkers would continue their studies of human anatomy throughout the following centuries. But by the 14th and 15th centuries, As the Catholic Church became the dominant force throughout Europe, dissection of the human body was mostly outlawed. By the 16th century, belief in the body's resurrection after death was commonplace, so to interfere with that process in any way was considered a major problem. In 1506, James IV of Scotland granted tentative permission to the Edinburgh Guild of Surgeons and Barbers to dissect a few select hanged criminals. Henry VIII soon followed suit and granted the same permission, 
but would only allow four condemned prisoners per year to suffer this fate. But the handful of deceased felons who were allowed to undergo the knife each year weren't enough for the growing number of medical schools that were springing up throughout Britain. In 1752, the law was expanded, and the bodies of all deceased felons were considered open game. But even this wasn't enough to satisfy the overwhelming demand. And thus, the black market trade was born for human cadavers. These resurrection men, or resurrectionists as they would come to be known, developed a whole bag of tricks to steal bodies from the grave undetected. A common practice they employed was to burrow into the head of a grave and drag the corpse out with a noose around the neck. There were some people who would choose to take a more subtle approach by digging lengthy tunnels a good distance away in order to remove the body, leaving the grave above largely undisturbed, and the shroud and grave goods right where they were. Court sentences were higher, you see, for grave robbing than body snatching. A fresh body could fetch an individual as much as four guineas, and the punishment was often limited to a simple fine, so there was really very little reason for men of low character to obey the law. Things really got out of hand as corpses began disappearing even before a funeral could take place. Relatives of the deceased began sitting constant vigils near the body from the moment of death, continuing to guard the grave until the body had decomposed beyond usefulness. So much body snatching was going on back then that angry citizens took to the streets protesting the practice, demanding the government do something. Many graveyards built watchtowers and bodies were sometimes buried in steel cages called mort safes to prevent their theft. And all along, the surgeons, anatomists, and even the police largely turned a blind eye to the resurrectionists, because the work of learning to become a doctor was considered too important to interfere with. This opened the door for an enterprising duo named Burke and Hare, who took body snatching to its next logical conclusion. If they couldn't get fresh corpses out of the ground, they'd have to make their own. Dr. Robert Knox was a respected anatomist with the Royal College of Surgeons of Edinburgh. After contracting smallpox as a child, he was blind in one eye and badly disfigured. He served as an army physician in the Battle of Waterloo in 1815. In 1825, he joined the Royal College, where he undertook dissections twice a day, and promised his pupils a full demonstration of fresh anatomical subjects. He built a formidable reputation as one of the chief experts in the field of anatomy in Scotland, and students came from miles around to see his demonstrations. At his peak, more than 400 students a day were packing the halls of the anatomy chamber in order to see Knox dissect a human body. But Knox had the same problem as the rest of his peers. There simply weren't enough dead bodies to go around. In 1823, the British government had passed the Judgment of Death Act, which greatly reduced the number of capital offenses. With fewer crimes worthy of the hangman's noose, that meant there were even fewer bodies available to satisfy demand. William Burke and William Hare both hailed from the province of Ulster in the north of Ireland, and they moved to Scotland in order to find work as laborers on the Union Canal. The pair met at a local bar and became close friends and drinking buddies. Hare started a boarding house on the same street where Burke lived. In 1827, one of Burke's elderly tenants died of natural causes while still owing him back rent. To cover the outstanding debt, the pair sold the man's body to the medical school where Robert Knox taught. Knox paid the men seven pounds and ten shillings for the corpse, a decent wage for the era. Encouraged by the easy money they made from the sale, the pair tried it again in 1828 when another of Hare's tenants fell ill. But this time, Burke and Hare were too impatient to wait around for something as time-consuming as allowing the man to die on his own, 
So they got him drunk, held him down, then suffocated him by covering his face with a pillow. Although as they perfected their methods with their later victims, they would begin to skip the pillow entirely. One of the men would suffocate the intended victim by covering their nose and mouth with their bare hands, while the other would kneel on their chest to prevent air from entering the lungs. After that, Burke and Hare realized they didn't have enough ill tenants to keep their business growing, so they began enticing potential victims to come stay at the lodging house. They preyed mostly on the poorest individuals, who were least likely to be reported missing. By the time their murder spree came to an end, Burke and Hare were accused of killing 16 people, although the real number is likely higher. For each of their victims, Knox paid Burke and Hare between 7 to 10 pounds apiece. In April 1828, a local prostitute, Janet Brown, narrowly escaped becoming another one of Burke and Hare's victims, when she and a friend named Mary Patterson were invited by Burke to stay at the rooming house. Brown excused herself early in the evening, but when she returned later to collect her friend, she was told that Mary and Burke had stepped out. Brown waited for her friend for a while, but eventually grew impatient and left, never knowing that Mary was lying dead in the next room. When they brought Mary Patterson's body to Knox, one of the doctor's assistants recognized her and asked where the body had come from. Burke explained that the poor woman had drunk herself to death and that they had purchased the body from an old woman they met in a bar. Now, Burke and Hare weren't exactly criminal masterminds. They were lazy and drunk most of the time, and they recklessly found most of their victims around the neighborhood where they lived. It was only because no one was looking for the people they killed that they managed to get away with it for so long. In early to mid-1828, they smothered another lodger named Mrs. Haldane to death. They followed that up with another murder of an elderly lodger in May of that year. They then murdered a woman named Effie, a cinder gatherer who sold what she was able to find rummaging through the trash to make a living. Burke knew the woman personally, and one night while she was drunk and being helped by a constable back to her lodgings, Burke offered to take her there himself. Burke took her to Hare's house instead, and Dr. Knox later paid ten pounds for her corpse. In June, Burke and Hare murdered two more lodgers, an old woman and her blind grandson. Differing accounts say they either murdered the old woman by suffocation or by giving her an overdose of sleeping pills while the boy sat by the fire in the kitchen nearby. After she was dead, Hare carried the boy into the room with his grandmother's corpse and murdered him by breaking the child's spine across his knee. By that time, Burke and Hare's suspicious behavior was beginning to fuel local gossip. More of the victims they brought to Dr. Knox were being recognized, and throughout the area, more and more locals began noticing that people were going missing. Word really began to leak out about what the men were up to when they brought the body of a well-known, handicapped children's entertainer named James Wilson, better known as Daft Jamie, to Dr. Knox. Knox really began to feel the heat over that one, but all he could do was feign ignorance and try to cover for Burke and Hare by swiftly removing Daft Jamie's head and deformed foot during dissection. Over the next couple months, Burke and Hare had a bit of a falling out. The men began arguing after Burke became suspicious that Hare and his wife were cutting him out of deals. On Halloween 1828, Burke and Hare claimed their final victim. Her name was Margaret Doherty, a middle-aged Irish woman that Burke invited to stay at a lodging house owned by his mistress's cousin, James Brogan. It's difficult to say whether they thought they were being clever by inviting an out-of-towner to be their next victim. Burke told the woman that they were distant relatives from the old country, and that she should come visit him at his expense. Although Burke and Hare came to blows early that Halloween night, they soon agreed to a truce and murdered the woman together. 
But there was a problem with this murder that Burke and Hare weren't anticipating. A couple named Anne and James Gray were also staying at Brogan's lodging house that night. So Burke and Hare encouraged the couple to go stay at Hare's residence, leaving them alone with Margaret Doherty. But when the Grays returned the next morning, they were suspicious when Burke didn't want to let them back into the Brogan house to collect their belongings. The Grays managed to sneak into the house while Burke and Hare weren't around, and they soon discovered Doherty's body hidden in a pile of straw. The Grays went to the police, but while they were out, Burke and Hare removed the corpse and delivered it to Dr. Knox. When police searched the boarding house, they found a pile of bloodstained clothing hidden under a bed, which was enough for them to take the men in for questioning. Early the next morning, the police went to see Dr. Knox in his dissecting chamber, and that's where they discovered Doherty's body. James Gray identified the woman as the same person he'd seen alive the day before. Burke, Hare, Hare's wife Constantine, Burke's mistress Helen McDougall, and James Brogan were all arrested for suspicion of murder. Burke and Hare were accused of murdering of at least 16 people. Burke later stated that he and Hare knew what a horrible thing they had done, but the money was too good to pass up. Historians have said that Hare was the remorseless one, and that Burke seemed genuinely ashamed of what he'd done. He told authorities that the only way he was able to carry out the murders was in a state of constant intoxication. The victims haunted his dreams, he said, and that the only way he could sleep through the night anymore was by getting drunk or taking opium. In spite of Burke and Hare's statements, the police investigation was hampered by a lack of evidence. Nearly all their victims had long since been dissected by Dr. Knox, and to make matters worse, the coroner could not say for 100% certainty that Doherty had actually been murdered. Burke and Hare covered for Dr. Knox, claiming that the man had no knowledge of the murders. As a result, the doctor faced no charges. As word leaked out to the newspaper, citizens were outraged to hear that the wealthy doctor was going to skate free. A new word was coined in the city. Burking became a synonym for smothering a victim to death or committing an anatomy of murder. In the streets of Edinburgh, a new nursery rhyme began to circulate. Up the close and down the stair, Button Ben with Burke and Hare. Burke's the butcher, Hare's the thief. Knocks the boy that buys the beef. All sorts of witnesses began coming forth to incriminate the men. Janet Brown went to the police and identified Mary Patterson's clothing that the men still had in their possession. A local baker told them that Daft Jamie's trousers were being worn by Constantine Burke's son. In order to secure a conviction, authorities offered Hare and his wife full immunity from prosecution if they turned King's evidence and provided the full details of Doherty's murder and other crimes. Hare and his wife took the deal and wrote a full confession. Burke and his mistress Helen McDougall's trial began on Christmas Eve of 1828. Helen's complicity in the murders would eventually be deemed not proven under Scottish law and she would be set free. But Burke was found guilty and sentenced to death by hanging. Burke was hanged in front of a boisterous crowd of 25,000 on January 28, 1829. Perhaps fittingly, his body was initially put on public display, then donated to medical science. Many anatomy students took ghoulish souvenirs from Burke's corpse. Several of them used pieces of Burke's skin to bind books and card holders. Burke's skeleton is still on display at Surgeon's Hall in Edinburgh, next to his own death mask and a life mask taken from hair. Despite public outcry, Hare escaped prosecution and the hangman's noose. He was released in February 1829, 
and it's believed he fled across the border to England shortly thereafter. Although no one knows for sure what happened to him after that. Some say he was thrown into a lime quarry by an angry mob, while others say he lived out the rest of his life as a blind beggar on the streets of London. Ellen McDougall and Constantine Hare also fled Edinburgh. Ellen is rumored to have made her way to Australia, while Constantine lived out the rest of her life quietly in Ireland. Burke and Hare inspired another string of murders in 1831 that are often referred to as the London Burkers. This led to the swift passage of the Anatomy Act of 1832, which allowed doctors and anatomy students greater legal access to cadavers in order to eliminate the black market body snatching trade. About a decade after Burke's trial and conviction, a group of boys out hunting rabbits made an interesting discovery in a cave in Edinburgh's Holyrood Park. There were a group of 17 carved wooden dolls, about four inches long, each in their own individual coffins. At first, some people suspected they had been left there as part of some ancient witchcraft ritual. But after the dolls were dated, it became clear they had been carved right around the same time Burke and Hare had been committing their crimes. It's often speculated that one of the few people involved with intimate knowledge of the murders put them there, perhaps as some sort of gruesome trophy, or perhaps to assuage someone's guilt over what they had done. Now, admittedly, there is little direct evidence that the dolls were in any way related to Burke and Hare's murders, other than their location, the date of their creation, and the curious number of them that were found, which approximately matched the number of known victims. If they were carved by one of the people involved in the crimes, then that makes for a relatively small pool of suspects. There was Burke and Hare themselves, Hare's wife, Burke's mistress, and Dr. Knox, along with a couple of others who were probably aware of what was going on. It's also possible the dolls were made by someone who became aware of the crimes after the men were arrested, or that they had absolutely nothing to do with Burke and Hare at all. A few years ago, scientists tried to lift DNA from the dolls and match it to Burke's remains, but the results came back negative. Only eight of the original 17 dolls are left. They're on display at the National Museum of Scotland in Edinburgh, and they may be the only physical record that remains of the many victims of William Burke and William Hare. The Conspirators is written and produced by me, Nate Hale, an entirely fictional identity. If you like the show, please help us grow by downloading it on iTunes and leaving us a positive review. We're also always available on our website, theconspiratorspodcast.com, as well as Stitcher and the Google Play Store. Thanks for listening.